I'd like to read a couple, three verses from Jeremiah 23, where the Lord says, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places, so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? And then verse 29, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer which shatters rock? Today, as we begin the 13th chapter of 2 Samuel, we'll see how appropriate these words are for the situation for Amnon and others in that particular instance. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're so grateful to you that you are not a God who is near only, but a God who is afar off, but not afar off only, but near. We're so grateful that you walk with us, and yet you are the Lord of the universe. We give you praise and honor for that. We ask that you'll grant to us insight through the power of your Holy Spirit today. Your word is not of private interpretation, but of the interpretation of the Holy Spirit, who is God himself. And we pray that the eyes of our understanding will be opened, and we will not uh, hear the words only, but that they will become part of the warp and woof of our very being. Lord, we know that in our flesh we are weak, but in your spirit we are strong. And so we trust in your strength this day. I ask for your blessing in these men and women, that you will meet the need of each one this hour. And throughout this uh, property this morning, as the word is proclaimed, we ask that you will burn it into the hearts of children and adults alike, that we will go from this place with, a more, with greater resolve to serve you in the way that you've called us to. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Obviously, the study of the portion of 2 Samuel we have been in over the past few weeks has not been what we would call pleasant in terms of the subject matter. Uh, and the 13th chapter, unfortunately, does not improve the situation as far as that goes. The 13th chapter of 2 Samuel is full, is full of gross evil. We have incest uh, that will lead to fratricide. The kinds of things that you think of only in horror stories or in uh, the National Enquirer or something of that nature. But it's really what comprises human existence worldwide throughout history, unfortunately. We find in this passage, as gross as it may seem, some very powerful lessons, however, for us. God is a teacher. We know God is a teacher because He's always repeating truths because we don't get them the first time. He was very patient with Israel, of course, and repeated the truths over and over again. And we find yet in this passage, truths underscored yet another time. We have in this passage, lust, violence, all kinds of manner of evil. But out of it, we gain many lessons, but I would like to highlight two lessons which we have heard many times before. Sin is simply not something that can be toyed with, and it cannot be treated lightly. Many titter and, and, and giggle about uh, events that we have read and, and some of these events, and, and they're not funny at all. They're, they're horrifying, really, because they're so foreign to the nature of God. And unfortunately, they take place within the reign of this man of God known as David. But we discover, of course, and we know this to be true, and, and we've read this passage before, but I'd like to reiterate it, and, and that is sin is destructive. 
in our society, it is treated lightly. It is laughed at. It is, it is put over the, all over the pages of, of newspapers. And, and people argue that, oh, well, as long as the person's doing a good job over here, what they're doing over here in their, quote, private life isn't really important. But it is of eternal importance. So let me read the familiar passage to you from 1 James. I mean, James. Didn't know there was a 1 James, did you? From James, uh, reading at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. We are grossly deceived in our society. I trust we are not. But our society is grossly deceived. That, uh, that sin is, is not sin. And, and that evil is, is nothing to be really that concerned about. Because even if there is an afterlife, obviously God is, is, is because we did something, you know, like the old song, somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good, you know, from Sound of Music. And therefore, this good thing happens, you know. And because of that good somewhere in our youth or childhood, why God must accept us. And yeah, there might be some kind of purging if you belong to some of the liturgical churches and believe in, were to believe in purgatory, that would be where a lot of this purification would, would take place. But that isn't what Scripture says. Scripture says sin ultimately leads to death. And that death is not only physical death, it's, it's eternal destruction. And that is, of course, some of what we are reading about as we deal with um, particularly this 13th chapter and some of those chapters that will follow in 2 Samuel. We have a powerful enemy. He is known as the destroyer, and he is dedicated to our destruction. That's his purpose. That's his goal. Uh, he's going to hell, and he wants to take as many with him as he can. He's not gentle. He's vicious. And he will destroy everyone he can. And right in David's household, virtually under his nose, the most heinous of crimes will be committed. Secondly, we also know from Scripture that we reap what we sow. And, and you know, of course, that shows up so many times in Scripture and over and over again. Let me, let me just read that uh, sort of uh, archetypical passage in uh, Galatians chapter 6. Uh, reading in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, ultimate corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. The things that we will be studying about in the 13th chapter are, are so antithetical to how we should be living our lives. So it becomes sort of the, but for God, there, there's the picture of, of us. And maybe not to that extent, Lord knows, but sin is sin, and we're all of equal capacity for, for vileness, whatever it might be. And God doesn't go around 
uh, painting some people a little bit cleaner simply because their sins are, are not in our estimation as vile as someone else's sin. Sin separates us from God, period, end of argument, regardless of the nature of the sin, because, because built within us is our desire to do our own thing. That's what brought Adam and Eve down in the garden. And we follow because it's our nature. And it, it, it's really swimming countercurrent to walk the walk of God. And it takes His strength. It can only happen in His strength. That's why the teachings that, that we can be perfected in this life, the teachings that somehow um, we can do it, is, are, 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 they're a lie right out of the pit. Because we can only do it by total dependence on God each moment of the day. We'll see that although God forgave David of the gross sin of adultery, of murder, and of trying to cover it up and pretend like it didn't happen for nearly a year, God would forgive David of all that. But the repercussions were far-reaching and highly destructive on David's family. So let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13. I'd like to read the first six verses. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so frustrated because, his, because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin. And it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a shrewd man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab then said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat, and let her prepare the food in my sight, that I might eat it, may see it, and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. As I mentioned before, this chapter is a chapter that has to do with incest and it has to do ultimately with fratricide. But of course, the real root behind it is obviously lack of personal relationship with the God of Israel. With the exception of the year or so, whatever the time frame was, that David was in rebellion, triggered by his lust over Bathsheba. Other than that time, David had set a great example as king over Israel. Not that he was a perfect king, but he modeled the kingship of God in, in many ways. Unfortunately, however, as a father, he was far from exemplary. And the root of David's problem was that his disobedience, blatant disobedience to the clear word of God, where in Deuteronomy 17, 17, God made it clear that the kings of Israel were not to multiply wives unto themselves. David would have many wives. He would also have 10 or so concubines. 
Six of his wives are named for us in 2 Samuel chapter 3, and we've already talked, uh, gone over that list and talked about the sons and the birth order of the first six sons that are listed there. But to the six there, you've got add Michael, who was his first wife, and, and then you have to add Bathsheba and Abishag, who will come later, Bathsheba now and Abishag in his older age. And who knows what other women? We don't know. Because the scripture tells us that when he moved from Hebron to Jerusalem, it says that he added wives and concubines to himself. In fact, in the fifth chapter, 13th verse of 2 Samuel, we read, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. Now, the first six wives he already had in Hebron, because it tells us that his six sons that are listed there were born to him while he was in Hebron. And so now he adds more wives. Is this just Bathsheba? I don't think so. Is it just Abishag? Probably not. It, it's probably additional wives who, who aren't even put in the list here. Now, the problems that we're going to see primarily here stem from the, the children from David's wives. As a result, we're not going to focus on concubinage. Concubinage was an age-old, widespread legal method by which men could add more women to their households, primarily, of course, for the purpose of sexual activity, but also for sealing treaties, and usually wives are in that category, but uh, doing various duties, whatever they may be. Most of David's problems come from his sons by his wives. Now, we all know, because we have read Genesis on many occasions, I'm sure, that when God brought Adam and Eve together in marriage, he proclaimed that marriage would be comprised of one man and one woman. And of course, we live in a society which tries to moderate that and modify it and say, well, you know, it can be one man and one man and one woman and one woman and all kinds of other uh, deviations. And it's clear from Scripture and it's usually in the wedding vows, that as one man joins one woman, they are to be united together as one in the eyes of God and in the eyes of society. So it's like we are addressed. People send mail to our household as Mr. and Mrs. You know, they, they don't usually, I mean, they do send it to us with my name or my wife's name, but usually it's like Mr. and Mrs. So even in society, we're usually seen as one, and, and certainly in the eyes of God, we're seen in one. So therefore, for a man to have multiple wives violates the fundamental principles of marriage. David could not be one with six wives, let alone seven, eight, or nine, or however many. How do you become one with a multitude? Not even counting the concubines. It's not possible for that to be true. Now, David was a good man, by and large. But there's no way he could fulfill his God-ordained function as husband to so many different women because each of them had their needs and, and, and their desires and their hopes and their aspirations and their own psychological makeup. And most of us who have been married for any length of time know that we each have to adjust to one another and learn to, to love that person for whom that person is. And how do you get to know so many people? So intimately, as marriage is supposed to be, you, you, you know, intimacy of oneness. And so David here is flying directly in the face of God's commands. And he's doing it, of course, partly because the excuse is that that's what kings do. Well, Israel's supposed to be different. 
from the surrounding nations. Down through the pages of history, most kings or queens uh, have had multiple partners, either uh, legally or, or, or you know, uh, I'm not going to say illegally necessarily, technically illegally, but kings and queens get away with whatever they want, uh, it seems. I mean, you think of Henry VIII and we think, oh man, this bad dude, you know, he had six wives, but, but he had them serially, you know, one after the other. Of course, he cut a couple of heads off along the way and so forth. He was a vicious and vile man. But David didn't even bother having him serially as him all at once. We call that a harem, and that's exactly what he had. Now, if you study history, you'll discover if you look at some of the uh, major societies of history that harems were not unusual at all. Probably the most notorious harems were those of, of Turkey and uh, of the sultans of Turkey and then of the emperors of China. And in, in the case of the, of the Sultan of Turkey, generally speaking, there were 300 women in the um, harem that he maintained. And whoever produced the first son became number one, you know, and whoever produced the second son became number two. I mean, you know, you can understand how that kind of a situation is going to produce a great deal of rivalry. And it is said that the uh, Turkish harem was a hotbed of all kinds of not only violence and evil, but planning for overthrow of government, literally. And, and China was no better. You know, that many Chinese emperors uh, were, were the product of intrigues within the harem itself. Because in, as we think about this, we have to always be reminded that each of these persons is an individual. You know, we, we could just list David's wives and, and, you know, list their names there and, and pass them by, but each was a person just as you and I are a person with a life, with a hope, with aspirations, with, with desire for success, with, with all the kinds of emotions and feelings we have. We can't just lump them all together, but that's what happens. You, you think of the Turkish harem of 300 women. In one case, the, Turk, the, the, the um, sultan got so sick of them, he just bagged them all up and dumped them all in the, in the sea and drowned them all. The whole lot. You know, it, it's, it's like treating human beings like you're a bunch of chickens or something, and anim animals, rather than made in the image of God. So David is demoting the indiv individuality of these ladies, particularly in the case of the concubines, because that's a very second-class position to be in. They're not even named. What you have, then, is a condition a milieu, if you will, which is going to produce intrigue. It's going to produce rivalry. It's going to produce jealousy. How can one woman not be jealous of the other women? What did the other wives think when David decided to marry the next one? Were they all there happy, you know, little may baskets of flowers hooping it up at the party? Well, I don't think so. All we have to do is look at Abraham and, and Sarah and the Hagar situation and, and know how, how much jealousy and rivalry can develop. And even though it's not spelled out for us here, it's here. It's within David's household. And you have the insurmountable problem of the rivalry between half-siblings. They all have the same father, but they have different mothers. And so each is going to carry the banner of his or her mother in rivalry of the other mothers. And each is going to hope that the older brother 
in this case Amnon, who is theoretically the heir apparent throne, is going to kick off. So the next guy can move up. Oh, and, and that can be arranged. This, for example, referring to the Chinese harem, it was happening all the time. To be the, 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 the chief heir of the Chinese emperor was an extremely dangerous position because all the other wives in the harem were all, you know, concerned about their sons and, and your, your life was pretty well forfeit because they learned the art of poisoning to, to, to the ultimate, you know. And so life became very cheap amongst the royal siblings. And so you have these half-siblings, common father, different mothers, rivalry amongst them. Rivalry for what? For one thing, for affection from their father. I mean, it's natural. I mean, all of us want our father to love us if we have a father. I mean, we all have had a father, but I mean, one that we know and, and one that we've spent time with. Just like we want our Heavenly Father to love us, and, and fortunately, the Scripture proclaims from one to the other that He does, and that His love for us is not diminished by our failure. His love was not diminished for David, because even though David was for nine months or a year, or however long it was, telling God to go away, and he didn't want to hear anything to, that, that would convict him of what he was doing. God still loved him, enough to be after him, and he was transformed. But he had to live with the consequences. And so we not only have then the rivalry amongst the wives, but the rivalry amongst the children for their father's affection and the rivalry amongst the sons to be heir to the throne. You know, power. I mean, our, our society, we, we keep hearing that the three big things in our society are money, sex, and power. And all you have to do is look at some recent high-ranking people in this country and you understand the reality of that. Well, the fruit of this sibling rivalry comes out beginning in this particular chapter. According to 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 2, Amnon, whose name meant faithful, was the son of Ahinoam, and he was David's firstborn son. As such, traditionally he was the heir to the throne. Usually speaking, down through most societies, the eldest son of the ruler is the heir to the throne. Uh, you can find exceptions if you look here and there. In some societies, the throne goes to the brother of, of the king, but generally speaking, it goes to the eldest son, and in the place of the eldest son, if the eldest son has had a child but he is dead, it goes to his eldest son. For example, you look at the reign of Louis XIV. Louis XIV ruled in the 17th and 18th centuries in France, longest ruling king in French history, he ruled so long that he outlived his son and his grandson. So the throne went to his great-grandson, but by his eldest son. So his eldest son, whose name was Louis, had a son who, eldest son whose name was Louis, and he had a son whose name was Louis. Yeah. And so when Louis XIV dies, he's replaced by Louis XV, but he's not his son. He's his great-grandson. But not all societies do that. In this particular case, because Amnon is not married and Amnon has no children, if Amnon kicks off, then Achilleab, or Daniel as he's sometimes called, becomes the heir to the throne. And if he's no longer around, then Absalom is heir to the throne. Hmm. And uh, we already know something about Absalom besides what's uh, in this account. Absalom, whose name means father is peace, was David's thirdborn. He was born to Meacha, 
the daughter of the king of Geshur, and, and when we looked at the map, Geshur was uh, somewhat to the north there, one of the Syriac or, or, or uh, uh, Aramean kingdoms that was uh, to the north, uh, a little bit to the east of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, Meaka was sort of a, I guess you could say a treaty bride, even though it's not spelled out, we assume that. And anyway, she, and of course you can understand why Absalom would think that maybe he had a better right to the throne because his mother was a princess and his father was a king. And there, I, mean, I mean, his mother's father, his grandfather was a king and uh, David was a king, so he probably should have more right to the throne than Amnon has, whose mother was not a princess. Now what we find is that we're told in this account that Absalom had a sister whose name was Tamar, and we're told that she was beautiful, which in this case becomes a curse. So Tamar and Amnon are half-siblings. They have different mothers but the same father, David. He is struck by his half-sister's physical beauty. He has, of course, seen her, obviously, most often, probably, when she's all decked out at, at some court proceeding. And he's wowed by her. And what he does is he allows his lust to get the better of him. In fact, his lust so consumes him that he becomes despondent over the fact that she is unattainable or seems unattainable. Because the scripture says she maintained her virginity and did not, obviously, did not reciprocate his feelings if she, I, I don't think she even knew them. In fact, I think as we look at the passage, it's clear that she didn't know them. Sadly, David's terrible example with Bathsheba certainly set a stumbling block for Amnon. If David ever did try to teach his son self-control or teach him anything, his affair with Bathsheba pretty much destroyed his credibility. Can you imagine David trying to chastise one of his sons for, uh, you know, lustful dalliance. And they're going to say, uh, Dad, that seems to me I remember something about Bathsheba. <clears throat> God has forgiven, but the reality is still there. It has not disappeared. Now, we know that uh, David was not much of a disciplinarian because later on in 1 Kings we'll discover that when his son Adonijah was acting up and acting in, a, in rebellion, the scripture tells us that David never questioned or challenged his son about anything. So David apparently pretty much let his sons run free and uh, his hope was of course that because they were supposed to be counselors that they would see in his leadership style something to, uh, to emulate. But many of them, especially Amnon, was not, were not thinking about his leadership style. They were thinking about his sexual life. You know, we think that our society is sex sick, which it is, but that's not an unusual phenomenon in history. Uh, you go back to the days we're talking about here and, and many of the societies that surrounded Israel, sex was part of the religions that they practiced. And, and uh, cult prostitution of males and females was, was admonished, encouraged. It's what you did to honor the God, whoever the God might be. And so sex sickness is endemic. 
Solomon, fortunately, apparently, well, when it comes to number of wives, obviously Solomon didn't learn a thing. But he apparently learned a little bit about, <laughs> about discipline of his son or of his sons. At least he wrote about it. I hope he practiced it. But in, in Proverbs 20, now I'll read a couple of verses you're already quite familiar with, but verses that some people don't like to be in the Scripture and some people say don't mean what they say. But in, in 29.15, we read that the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother and his father too, but at this point. In verse 17, correct your son and he will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. I mean, we're, we're, that's the object of parents, uh, not the object, but one of the roles of parents is to correct their children, and sometimes it requires the application of the Board of Education, right, to the seat of understanding. We all understand that, even though there are people in our society who claim that, oh, that's, that's abuse. It's abuse to not do it. It's abuse to not do it, to allow the child to grow up uncorrected and damn his soul. Unfortunately, Amnon had a friend who was also his cousin, whose name is Jonadab, which means Yahweh is noble. Some of these, I mean, these people had great names. They sure didn't live up to their name. You know, Yahweh is noble, and we're told he was a very shrewd man. And the implication was not shrewd in a good way. He had witnessed Amnon's depression. Obviously, Amnon was, was, was really sulking, you know, not wanting to get out of bed in the morning and all the rest of what happens to somebody who is in depression. And so he cared enough to say, why are you depressed? Every time I come here every morning, you're in depression. Why is this? What's with you, Amnon? Tell me your problem. Now, who should have been asking him this question? David. But it's this shrewd man who's asking, you know, one of his own cronies, his own cousin, who's asking him this question. Apparently, David rarely saw his son especially during this particular period. There's no evidence that he was aware of Amnon's depression. Well, he later comes when Amnon feigns illness, but, but he doesn't seem to know this uh, problem. It, 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 Amnon was supposed to be one. Amnon was supposed to be trained, being in, in training for the throne. You know, theoretically, he was heir apparent. And so he should have been at his father's side most of the time, and so he probably, quote, called in sick. And David never bothered to find out why. Because he had other sons to step in and, you know. Since Tamar was kept in seclusion, which was common for the virgin princesses, not only of Israel, because of this, Amnon had been frustrated because he wanted to seduce her. I mean, there was no courtship in his mind. This was go right for, you know, her body. He thought his feelings were rooted in love. Just like a lot of people use the word love today in the stupid songs they sing and in the way they act towards one another, it has not a thing to do with love. Because we understand love, uh, not only, of course, God's love, but, he, but even human love should be a, 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 an emotion, a desire, a, a, an attitude in which the other person is important in your eyes. Not somebody to degrade and use, which is lust. And that's what he's experiencing here. He calls it love. But it's lust. And so he responded to Jonadab's question by saying, Oh, I'm in love with Tamar, and, and I can't express it. There's no way for me to fulfill my love for this beautiful lady. 
And so Jonadab, the scripture says, being a very shrewd man, came up with a brilliant solution to Amnon's problem, unfortunately. He advised Amnon to feign illness. Oh, pretend like you're really ill. I don't mean like you got a cold. You got to be really ill here so that your father will pay attention and come down and see what your problem is. They'd be concerned enough to actually visit you. Now, there are some commentators who like to paint David in a much more upbeat manner and say that David was so concerned and everything here. Well, you know, I think he becomes concerned at this point, but I don't think before he even knew Amnon had a problem. When David came, he had to appear sufficiently ill so that David would, would, would feel motivated to grant his request. Oh, you poor, poor boy. What is it you need? What is it you want? Anything I can do to help you. And then his request, of course, had to sound reasonable. He couldn't say, well, send me Tamer here because I want to rape her. You know, he couldn't say that. David would, of course, not obliged. And so he has to say, please let Tamer come because she's such an exquisite maker of these special little cakes that I, that I like. And, and I want her to feed them to me so that her very presence will be a healing. I mean, it doesn't say that in so many words, but that's what's implied here. And what's interesting is the word used for cakes here is only used three times in Scripture, this particular word. And exactly what it refers to, nobody knows. Some assume that it was sort of a pancake-like little piece of bread of some sort. Probably wasn't chocolate cake, you know, with, with sprinkles on top. As you know, we think of cake, we think of birthday cake. Uh, you know, that's not what we're talking about here. It was probably a bread of some sort. <clears throat> probably birthday cake wouldn't be the best thing to feed a sick, sick person, you know. Now, there were no medical facilities in those days. He couldn't be sent down to Mount Zion Hospital, you know. And there were no professional medical personnel in those days. And so nursing was done by somebody in the family. So it's extremely usual for somebody in the family to, to be nursed to a, a, an ill person. And so the request that, uh, that uh, Amnon made didn't seem out of the ordinary to David. Oh, you want Tamar? Well, Tamar, she's a very nice girl. She's a very pleasant girl. She's a very happy girl. Yeah, and she does make good cakes. I, we're, I'm, you know, I'm assuming these things. But that's very probable. And, you know, she may have been known as the best baker amongst David's daughters. I don't know what she would have been doing baking. She was a daughter princess, but obviously they learned some practice. You know, they must have had home economics as part of the training. Cheerful, caring probably was her personality. She probably wasn't an aloof smart aleck or else David would have said, what do you want Tamar for? She'll just come down here and bite your head off. No, she, she obviously was a, a caretaking kind of person. And so this seemed reasonable to him. Whatever the case, whatever was the reality of the situation, whatever it was David thought, what he didn't think or didn't know was that this son had an obsession for Tamar. I don't think David would have sent Tamar had he known what Amnon's purposes were. Ooh. Well, let me read the next verses, and we'll have to look at them next week. Don't like to leave you high and dry. Well, actually, this is the better part of the story. It doesn't get better in the next passage, but let's read them. Verse 7, 
Then David sent to the house of Tamar, saying, Go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. <laughs> what a brat. And Amnon said, Have everyone go out for me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into my bedroom, that I might eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her, saying, Come and lie with me, my sister. He, of course, doesn't mean rest along my side here. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And we'll look at the Hebrew here because it's not that I know Hebrew very well. I'd have to have Dr. Daniel do that uh, for me. But, you know, I can look up the word. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold you from me. By the way, she does not believe that to be true, but anything to get out of this. However, he would not listen to her since he was stronger than she and he violated her and lay with her. This is half-sister. Both had the same father, which is, of course, incest. Well, next week we'll look at that.